but we also have people who who leave you know and go off to the full-time college job and we'll see them a couple years later when they're shopping in the store with their toddler at their side and they'll say they would say i would never be where i am today if it wasn't for working in this store as a teenager it took me out of my shell and it's so fun to see this shy awkward 16 year old who is mortified that they have to hit a button on a phone and say uh so-and-so pick up on line two <laughs> to hear their voice over a loudspeaker <laughs> and six months later they're standing tall and confident and projecting into the phone and it's so incredible to see the transformations when people have forced social repetitions you get good at it i, I worry with you know the, all these minimum wage increases like it's if it keeps going it's going to get to the point where we have no choice but to automate away a lot of these entry-level jobs and there's just going to be less of these learning opportunities for people who you know, for positions we would fill with low-paying, basic entry-level jobs. Welcome to the SMB Op Show, an exploration into the mental models and decision processes of operators. I am Joshua Schultz, and with me today is Rob Laban from Laban Grocery. Today, we dive into the implications of being the low-cost versus the high-service providers, some of the metrics that Rob watches on a daily basis, and the importance of culture. If you'd like to interact with me, you can find me on Twitter, where my handle is Joshua M. Schultz. Let's dive in today. Man, I'm excited. Let's talk grocery stores, grocery store industry. So like one of the first things I ever saw about you was you are a, uh, is a third generation butcher. Technically sixth generation. Sixth generation butcher. Yep. And at what point did the grocery store enter in? So it started off the current corporation started in 1962 when my grandfather and great-grandfather were both working for another company and they realized it was going under and my grandfather walked in the the meat cooler and he saw my great-grandfather crying and he's like what's going on he goes this we're going under he goes this company's not going to make it he said well we both have life insurance policies why don't we cash them in there's a little 900 square foot store down on Main Street that we could rent, and we'll start our own little butcher shop. So they did that. Opened in August of 1962. So from there, it's it's funny. I still drive by this building all the time. It's now Jimmy's Diner, but there's this part of the building in this like right hand corner is where they started, and then like a couple years later, they took over the second third of the building, and then a couple years later, they took over the whole building. And it used to be so busy there when they would put burger on sale that they'd have to hire a police officer to come every time burger was on sale to direct traffic in and out of the, the parking lot there. It's this tiny little shop, but you know, they worked all the time, true family affair. My grandfather, great grandfather, they're 50, 50 partners. My grandmother, she would go in and cut meat and run the register. My father came up in the business. He started working when he was eight years old and he eventually learned how to cut meat. And he ended up meeting my mother there. She was a cashier, later went on to be a nurse. And then from there, they ended up buying a store in the 80s, uh, more of a full-size market. They took over from someone else and full-on grocery store from there. And eventually grew to our four stores that we have now and 400 plus employees, 50 million plus a year. So it's quite a, a shop. So what makes what makes it a grocery store? I mean, there's there's convenience stores that now have meat and produce. I mean, like, what makes a grocery store a grocery store? That's a good question because that line is blurring. You know, you have Dollar Generals coming to town, and there's different types of grocery stores. You have Trader Joe's, which is raved about, but they're interesting because they don't have departments within their store. Every 
every employee can work every department. It's super efficient, but every single thing is packaged. There's no random weight items. There's no full service butcher. There's no full service meat counter. So they've really chosen an efficiency model and they have very limited item count because everything's almost everything's private labeled. So I have a lot of respect for them. I think it's a great brand. I mean, they've just absolutely crushed it. And, you know, the brand recognition is incredible. And then you have your, your mass market stores, you know, very big locations, 60,000 square feet and up, like Stop and Shop, ShopRite. They're traditional supermarkets. And, you know, they'll have 60,000 plus items available for sale. You know, whereas between our four stores, I think we sold around 42,000 unique items this past year. But our stores range from anywhere about 12,000 square feet up to 25,000 square feet to our biggest one. And yeah, so I mean, full service store, we have full service produce, meat, deli, prepared foods, your typical center store, grocery frozen dairy. Yeah, I'd say that's, that's what makes a grocery store. You know, and you compare us to a, a convenience store, you know, like your every gas station, like you said, has, you know, milk, eggs nowadays, but you can't do your full shop there. I'm going to read between the lines here and I'm going to dive into the ops ahead of what I wanted to, but you said something that really caught my interest and I never thought about it. Trader Joe's has basically a, a very efficient system where everything is packed the way it is. You don't need specialty. There's no, I think you call it full service desks. Um, and again, I never noticed this, but now that you mentioned it, obviously I can picture it. And I'm like, oh yeah, you're right. Everything is just a package put on a shelf. Employee A, B, or C can do that. So there is basically two kinds of operating models. It looks like there is this efficient buildup, which is almost convenience store style. That Trader Joe's operationally, are you telling me, is that more like a convenience store than it is a grocery store? Just operationally and just distribution-wise, how it gets the product to the customer? Well, I, I could say a convenience store would be super limited. I mean, your typical gas station just has one employee. Um, they don't do really any service. I mean, that varies. You go down, there's, I know there's high-end gas stations in Texas that people rave about, what is it, Bucky's or something? You know, they're, they're, that's more of an experiential thing. But around us, your typical gas station is just, you know, you have one wall of coolers and maybe some grab-and-go sandwiches that are brought in by a company. But so there's, there's different models. And I think momentum really determines where you're at in the grocery industry. Like we've been doing the full service model forever. And to stop that or change that, we would have to completely change our operation. It, this is a big flywheel that we have turning that you can't just put the brakes on and change direction unless you were to say open a new location, which currently isn't in the cards for us. So full service, you've mentioned that a bunch of times, obviously important to your operation. Full service, can you define that? What do you mean exactly by a full service department? Full service meaning you can go and get everything you would need for your groceries. And say you are standing in front of the meat case and you want that tenderloin steak cut in half. We can do that for you. Or if you are rustling through the meat case and you see a, a sirloin roast that's four pounds and you want it to be two pounds, you can go and talk to one of our butchers and they'll happily cut it in half for you. Things like that. You know, from our seafood department, you're not buying it in a plastic wrap package. We're taking the whole filet and cutting exactly the size you want. In our deli department, we do some pre-sliced stuff, but almost all of it is sliced fresh. So you're walking up and you're saying, I'll take a pound of Borsad American cheese. And we're asking you, how thick would you like it? You know, do you want it in two packages or one package? 
So little things like that. We also offer, offer full service catering. We do, you know, millions of dollars a year in catered events. Not what you would think of like, like a catering hall, but more of people picking up trays of food that we've cooked fresh and hot and ready to go. So just larger volume than you would go and say, get out of a small deli container. So that's really what makes us full service. And, you know, you can't do that at a Trader Joe's. Again, I'm kind of making this up, but I'm thinking through the implications of what you said or what you're telling me. Trader Joe's, if they are going to try to make their operation better, right? We'll leave it general on purpose. They're going to get rid of products before they get rid of, of like, that's going to be the first thing to go. They're going to get rid of products. This doesn't fit into our distribution method. You are probably more focused on getting the customer everything and being like you say, full service. We can customize everything. You're going to remove different things like because of what you're trying to get. What are you going to be removing? Like what are the things that you say no to that don't fit into a full service model? Yeah. I mean, as you're talking, it makes me think of how they probably have fared much better in this market with the labor crunch because they don't have any specialized employees in the store, maybe besides the manager. But other than that, everyone they hire is an entry-level person who just needs to put product up on the shelves and check people out. Whereas with us, we have full-service butchers. I mean, these people are highly trained. They've been doing this their whole career. We have gourmet chefs in the kitchens. The people who run our produce departments are highly specialized positions. So we have to be much more competitive on the labor market than they are because they can pretty much take anybody off the street with no real skills. And while we have a lot of that as well, entry-level labor, we also have that specialty labor as well. Yeah, I would think that your problem is also your moat, though. I, I know I've I've mentioned a few times online, you know, the classic triangle: cost, quality, and time. I would always, I never want to compete on cost if I don't have to, because my moat is with doing something a special way, and I I feel more comfortable making a higher margin that I can then invest back in my business and create what your specialty is the word. What's the word I'm looking for? Like like knowledge, like our, our our niche. Yeah, I mean, so like. We recently went through EOS, and part of that, you define, you put into words what your niche is. And ours is fresh, friendly, family-owned, and close to home. So you don't hear price later anywhere in there. We can't. We just simply can't. What we can buy Hellman's mayonnaise from our largest wholesaler for, Walmart sells it for three cents less at retail. So these mass market CPG center store items that are extremely price sensitive, you know, we'll make nothing on them and still be more cost more than a Walmart would be. But because we can't buy direct tractor trailer fulls, tractor trailers from Unilever, you know, or from P and G, whoever it may be. So we can't offer those cost savings, but we, we really operate off of, you know, quality is obviously number one, super friendly people. And the big one is we're, we're close to home. In three out of our four towns, we're the only grocery store in town. So people want a quick trip. It's a smaller store. The seniors love it. They don't have to walk as far. If you don't want to drive another 10 minutes, you're going to come shop with us. So geography is important. And I know we have a lot of overlap with real estate folks. We don't own any of our locations. We pay a million bucks a year in rent. And... I wish we could just go and move to the next town over and build a store, but you can't because geography is so important for us. We have to be in these locations because that's where our market is. And, you know, geography is, is and the inability to build somewhere new in our town is what gives us a lot of our moat. That's really interesting. 
just that idea between cost and service, even in the grocery industry. So let's move to, like, speaking of that, let's move to ratios and metrics then. If you're not the low-cost provider, what are the things that you're watching on a weekly, monthly, and annual basis that's telling you if you're doing good or bad? Because obviously you can't just say, oh, we're the lowest cost. And as long as we're lower than the competitor, we're winning and we're going to get more market share. There's got to be other things that you care about that are somehow reflecting quality, service, satisfaction, whatever it is. Yeah. So I actually have our scorecard pulled up in the tab next to you here. And obviously sales, you know, you're always looking at your sales. That's your top line number. But in addition to that, we're looking at our transaction count, our average transaction size, the number of items sold, and the number of items per transaction. Another big measurement that we rely on is our known customer percentage. And this is something I think a lot of people wouldn't think about uh, if you have e-commerce folks listening. But typically, in a grocery store, historically, you don't know, you have no data on who your customer is for a specific transaction. You need a loyalty program, where, which is essentially a CRM, which gives you that customer data. But for a customer to come to your store and then take the extra step to associate themselves with the transaction to say, you know, I declare I'm so-and-so and I'm going to put my phone number in to make it so my name is tied to this transaction. There has to be a reason. So we have a loyalty program where we offer 1% cash back on all their purchases. And this is their incentive to consistently associate themselves with the transaction. Because if you had an infrequent reward, so maybe it was just like a digital coupon here and there, and the incentive wouldn't be there to constantly put their phone number in. But we want that reason to always associate so that we're getting that data and we know who's buying what. And then part of that process is they get an extra 5 bucks off their first transaction when they sign up with an email. So we can then uh, retarget market them. We send out monthly coupons through this program that I created called Basket Lift, which incentivizes a larger average transaction size by looking at their previous month's average. So we're always trying to level them up with coupons. And and what are those coupons on? Like adjacent items that they also might like? Is that, what the, is that how you increase the average order? Well, we don't get that specific with it. It's really just looking simply at their average transaction size. So if somebody spends um, an average of, say... $60 per transaction. I want to try to get them to spend a hundred bucks. I may offer them a 10 off of $120 coupon. And the interesting thing with this that I found is people spend on an average 34% more than they need to, to redeem that coupon. So if I give somebody a 10 off of a hundred dollar coupon on average, that bracket of customer will spend $134. So it makes the percentage I'm giving away considerably less. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. Uh, I wonder how many other people are looking at it that micro and actually knowing what that spread is on the extra spend to achieve the savings. And at the same time, you're hitting one of your main metrics. Yeah, in our business, it's it's tough to give away 10%. And while we're on the subject, this is something super recent, pressing. Just this past week, I emailed 11,000 of our customers who have used our senior discount at some point in the past year. And we've given away over a million dollars in senior discount this past year. It's basically we offer 10% off for seniors every Tuesday through Thursday. And they just have to say, Hey, I'm a senior when they check out. It's for people age 62 and up. And we're really seeing a crunch of our margins lately through 
just one example is our main wholesaler. They just increased their delivery fee. Essentially, our, their, every time they stop at one of our locations, it used to be 25 bucks. It's now 90 So that's that's a small thing. Our health insurance is going up by 100 grand this year. I can go on and on and on. But basically, these that's that's just shrinking our gross because this is all stuff we have to pay out of our gross margin. You know, If our cost of goods is 65%, all of these costs that go up that aren't part of our cost of goods it just eliminates our profits so we had to find a way to you know find this extra margin so we are taking that 10 percent senior discount we made it a five percent senior discount and i was so nervous to send this email i mean i'm emailing eleven thousand people and telling you listen you're we're cutting your discount in half and but we had to do it and i hit send and i was blown away by the support that we got really yeah i would have thought that market would would be apt to say oh no you don't like this is i've had this and you can't take this away yeah i would say nine out of ten email replies that i got were supportive like not always like oh good i'm glad i'm spending five percent less but like you know it was understanding in the sense of like listen i get what's going on everything's crazy right now we love having you guys in the area i can't imagine not having you here so please do what you got to do to make sure you're here for us in the long run. And we had uh, my favorite response was one customer said, listen, I don't mind if you get rid of it completely. Well, you know, we'll still shop with you either way. <laughs> so, and, you know, of course, when you email 11,000 people, you're going to have a, a good amount that are yep, pissed off as well. So we had a few people ranting and raving and how dare you. And, but I was, took a lot of comfort in like, okay, the majority still supports us. And most people said, thank you for still giving us something because most stores don't give us any kind of discount. So that was nice. And kind of a rant uh, that went off in many different directions, but I felt it was relevant to the topic. Yeah. So just really quick, let's say we're talking a year ago. What was your net? Can you share that? Your net, just the percent. Net profit? I'm wondering how big a 10% dip actually hurts you like is your net profit like five percent where like a ten percent hit on the front side with with a twenty percent of your transactions is going to be a major so i i probably shouldn't go into our specific numbers but i'll just say the industry average is one percent net margin in the grocery business so so ten percent is huge then ten percent off is yeah a massive discount. so but those margins are after discounting you know so those are average margins. And remember, these people still shop with us outside of the Tuesday through Thursday. And a lot of times they come, they forget to ask for their discounts. So it's not a guaranteed thing. Um, we don't tie their discount to like their loyalty program. So it is something they need to verbally ask for. We don't want it to be a given or an entitlement. Yeah, um, you don't want it to default to that. Yeah. So that's just one way we have to make up for cost increases. And it's, it's not going to, it's not hitting our bottom line in profits. We're just trying to stay even. So, and I know you had asked about other, other metrics. Do you want me to keep going on those? Let me just ask, throw one thing in there before you do it. It's, and maybe you're going to change this as you tell me more, but it sounds like you're trying to get, you're looking at a breakdown of sales. Is it how many people is it coming from? How many transactions? How big are those transactions? And then you can see if more people are coming in buying more product per visit, and that you're figuring the more they buy per visit and the more people that we add, the better we must be doing on all of our full service type offerings. Is that why those are in that dashboard? Yeah. Yes, just because they're critical numbers. Our numbers are really consistent. 
you know, we don't see major swings. We, we can predict typically within a few grand of what we're going to do week to week, which is nice with the grocery business. So we're, we're typically not surprised to the downside. We often get surprised to the upside. Well, maybe that's weather related. Earlier part of this year, we had quite a few snowstorms that were big scares and people, you know, do panic buying kind of like they did prior to COVID. So we'll often get surprised to the upside. We rarely get surprised to the downside. I'd say downside surprises would be a compressor goes out and we lose the dairy case for a couple of days because it's hard to get parts right now. And, you know, for three days, we had no dairy sales or the frozen case was down or the meat case was down and you're trying to, you know, shove a whole section worth of product in another part of the store. So things like that will will catch us on the downside, but luckily they don't happen as often. So yeah, great. What are some of those other metrics on the dashboard? So, you know, we're looking at sales and you obviously break down sales by department. And then the big thing is labor hours. So I feel like a lot of companies will often look at labor dollars because it's that's very it, it's it's very tangible and it has a direct result in your numbers at the end of the day. But for our benchmarks, like store to store, department to department, we have to use hours because we can't penalize one department manager who happens to have more of a tenured staff under him who happens to be paid more than the next store that has a relatively new staff who's paid more entry level rates. So we want them to be, you know, competing against equal metrics. So that's why we have to use labor hours. And so we're, we're measuring sales labor hours. And then the big one is sales per labor hour worked. So, you know, the, the departments have different metrics. Like, you know, if I'm looking at this past week for grocery, they sold um, $448 for every hour of labor worked. Produce was 200. Meat was 150. Deli was 65. Bakery was 98. And the front end, we compare against the whole store because they're processing everything. That was like $623. So that's kind of like the benchmark numbers. And that's what you're, you're essentially taking two key metrics, blending them together. And it's a good way to compare store to store and see who's performing well and who's not. Are stores comparable where you can say, okay, meat per labor hour is X over in this store. So that should be achievable over in this other store. Or is the demographics of the visitors kind of decide that? And you can compare it to itself historically, but not really store to store. Yeah, it's... Two of our stores are more similar. Uh, we have two stores that have similar demographics and another two that they share similar demographics. One of them is a New Yorker weekender town. People come up from Manhattan every weekend. All the homes around there are multi-million dollar homes. You have Meryl Streep shopping in our store. She has a, a, a you know a house charge with a fake name on it. And I feel so bad for her. every time she comes in the store. If it's on a weekend or something, there are people like trying to take her picture and stuff. It's like, leave the, leave the woman alone. You know, but so like that's one of our demographics and that store will crank on the weekends and their, their, you know, meat sales per labor hour just absolutely dominate everybody else because where, you know, our prospect store is selling a uh, sirloin roast for four ninety nine a pound. The Salisbury store is selling a tenderloin roast for thirty two ninety nine a pound. You know, it's just so the same work goes into both of those items but the dollars are just through the roof on the premium product. And the same thing is true around the Christmas holidays. You know, most people buy rib roast, but up there they'll buy, you know, Nyman ranch 
certified humane, you know, prime grade only rib roast. And then the other stores, they may buy a strip roast. It's still a good roast, but maybe they're it's choice grade and it's going to be a third of the price. It it sounds like your breakdowns as far as sales to each department probably is not the same across stores. Your your weekend purchases are not necessarily going to reflect your Monday through Friday purchases. So your weekend store probably has a different breakdown. So it sounds like historical is going to give you the better idea rather than just looking in a store and being like, oh, you know, meat's usually 30% and it's only 20% here. So obviously we've got 10% upside. Not quite that easy. It's demographic related. To yeah. And the big thing too is you need a certain baseline number of hours in each department just to keep the, the doors open. And that baseline can cover a dramatic increase in sales. So we say in this industry that volume cures all ills. Like COVID, you, we made more money during the COVID time period because volume is through the roof. But our baseline labor didn't have to change that much. You, you add a couple more part-timers to cover, you have a few more hands on deck, but your management staff is fixed, your electrical is fixed. So you have this huge dramatic increase in sales, but your your baseline overhead stays the same for the most part. Mm-hmm. Yeah, understood. You got any more metrics? We look at purchases to sales, you know, weekly. That's kind of a, a leading indicator. Leading for what? That you're st- that inflation's happening? Yeah, no, for more like seeing where your margins are going to come out. So what what were our purchases we compared to our sales for this week? You know, it's not the full picture of margins because you're not getting cost of goods sold in there. You're not getting change in inventory values, which you which we assess quarterly. What's your turnover? I mean, I would think most of your stuff comes in and has to go out pretty fast. You got some shelf life, but I mean, what is a, a you can tell me a grocery store turnover if you want to keep it vague for product. Yeah. All right. So we're talking turns again. Like if we, if we annualize our turns for like the grocery department, you know, when I say grocery, you know, it's funny, this is a a terminology thing. You have to be careful how you say things because grocery to the layman is everything in a grocery store. But to us, grocery, grocery in my head is specifically departments 10 through 19, which is grocery, frozen dairy, health and beauty aid, and like your non-food stuff. So like essentially most barcoded product, excluding produce, beet, deli, bakery, your perishable hands-on products. So inventory turns for the grocery department is somewhere between like seven and nine, roughly annualized. So it's, it's much higher for the perishable departments. It's going to be higher for the frozen departments. Like, you know, frozen could be anywhere from, 10 to 15 and you know then you have dairy is going to be up even above that so gotcha interesting so i jumped up i got a question on how you run all this so you got all this stuff going on you got your dashboard the dashboard's i'm guessing part of a larger system so how do you run multiple locations keeping track of multiple departments within those locations you can't just hire a bunch of managers to handle each sub you know sub location because your overhead would be too big so how, like, what are your systems for keeping this whole thing in check and moving together? Well, you talked about managers. We do have managers in each store. And you know, luckily, it allows us to, be, to work on the business versus in the business, which is nice. And so I, I should probably just touch on our, our leadership structure quickly. So you can say my father is the visionary. I'm the integrator. If we're talking like EOS framework here. And below us, we have a store director at each location. And they are in charge of 
everything end to end for their specific location. And then under each store director, there is a department manager. So you have a produce manager, a meat slash seafood manager, deli slash bakery slash kitchen manager, grocery manager, and then a frozen dairy manager. So each individual department, each location does have its own manager. Yep. Yep. And the managers for each department are responsible for ordering, scheduling, and making sure everything is handled within their department. And so then even more so, how do your systems keep everybody other other than, I'm sure you're not in meetings all day long, you try to limit that. So what are the things that you do when the systems you have to keep everybody rowing together? Yeah. So about a year ago, we implemented EOS amongst our leadership team. And so we have a, a, a weekly leadership team meeting, our L10 meeting. It's about an hour and a half where it's myself, my father, and all the directors. So each store director, and we go through our, our key metrics, our our issues, you know, the whole standard headlines, segue, all that good stuff. And from there, after our meeting, they then have their store level meeting with their department manager, same exact agenda. They go through that, but at a store level. So the following week, any issues they bubble up to ours that we need to bring attention to and anything that happens in our meeting, they push down to their team. Each department's hours are set by their their target sales per labor hour. So we have their target sales per labor hour, which determines the budgeted hours per department. So basically, each week, the store director will go in, they'll make their overall store sales projection. And then below that, we have our department breakdown. So there's kind of standardized percentages of sales by department that we go off of. So if they just plug in their estimated total sales for the next coming week, the formula will break it out into their department-specific estimated sales. And then from there, we have our sales for labor hour targets, which then results in their budgeted labor hours for each week. Then the department managers are given that budgeted hours. They can go and schedule their people. You're having this meeting. It sounds like there's a one-week a one week turnaround time. So for example, like let me ask this. Your sub-managers, the, the, I think you call them divisional managers, is that what you call them? The department managers or the store directors? Store directors. Store director meeting happens before or after the leadership meeting? That one happens just after their store level Just one. after. Yep. So they can bubble your stuff down right away. But coming the coming the other way, it might take a week if it's not if it's not urgent. It'll take about a week to come back up. Exactly, it'll take a week to come back up. We give our store directors a lot of autonomy, and we trust them to just make the right decision. So, if if they're waiting on us to make a decision for them, we're probably doing something wrong. But if it's a big enough issue where we do need to get involved, they're just calling us or sending us an email directly. And I'm kind of more the Wizard of Oz behind the curtain within the company. Similar to you, um, I'm the one that creates the systems and enforces the rules and makes sure that everyone's rowing in the right direction. And my father, being the visionary, he handles the more the bigger personnel issues. Uh, if there's a sexual harassment claim, he's the one that's sitting down with all parties involved and going through the nuts and bolts of the situation. If he he's really thrives with the emotional side of things, and I thrive much more on the the data analytical side of things. And so it's good. We each have our, our strengths, but the interesting thing with our business is we deal with folks from all walks of life, you know, every gender diversity, orientation, educational levels, age levels, 
we have 16 year old kids working for us as cashiers and we have to deal with their drama <laughs> between 16 year olds. And then we have uh, 70, 80 year old retirees that work for us and everybody in between. So, you know, and when you have 400 people, you deal with some crazy issues every once in a while. We had, you know, everything from potentially suicidal teenagers to, you know, one of our seniors recently died of cancer. So it's, we get all ends of the spectrum. Yeah, it's gotta be difficult. That's something new for me. I ran a tech, a tech enabled supply chain company. We're not a tech company. I mean, we had parts, we had warehouse, but we were tech enabled and our labor pool was so small. That it was basically a bunch of friends that we were all running it and family. It was like six or seven of us. So for me, a cane cast now dealing with the same thing where we've got ex-felons and we've got all kinds of you know drama and issues and you can't just say we're not going to hire that kind of people because i believe that that's the kind of jobs they can get it's not it's i see it this is a personal thing but i see it it's not my not a wise decision to say hey we're not going to hire that it's a wise decision to build the kind of company that can help them like like reach their potential like that's the whole point of the cane cast that reg and i talk about all the time it's like hey we're not going to cut them off. We're going to look for more of them. We're just going to build the systems needed to support them, grow them and and pull them through. And that's, you know, it's time consuming and resource intensive, but also rewarding and, and part of what we're trying to build. So it sounds like you got a lot of that stuff coming in too. Yeah. And I think the cool thing with us is we know for most people, we're not uh, their forever home. If you know what I mean? We, we have a lot of managers who have been with us forever. You know, the people who get into a, a management position at a young age and they'll, they'll ride it out into retirement. We have, you know, countless people in those positions, but that's the, that's a very small minority of our jobs. Most of our jobs are, are part-time and even kids that stay with us for a few years, maybe a few years after high school or college, we look forward to helping them figure out what the next best step is for them in life. And there's been countless times where people leave because they want a higher paying job or something that's a little more laid back or a different environment. But it's, it's always a good compliment when they come back and they say, you know, I, I miss the people here and I enjoy the environment and the grass isn't always greener. But we also have people who, who leave, you know, and go off to the full-time college job and we'll see them a couple years later when they're shopping in the store with their toddler at their side. And they'll say, they would say, I would never be where I am today if it wasn't for working in this store as a teenager. It, took me out of my shell and it's so fun to see this shy awkward 16 year old who is mortified that they have to hit a button on a phone and say uh so and so pick up on line two <laughs> to hear their voice over a loudspeaker <laughs> and six months later they're standing tall and confident and projecting into the phone and it's so incredible to see the transformations when people have forced social repetitions you get good at it yeah. And it's, that's, I love that. I worry with, you know, all these minimum wage increases, like it's, if it keeps going, it's going to get to the point where we have no choice, but to automate away a lot of these entry level jobs. And there's just going to be less of these learning opportunities for people who, you know, for positions we would fill with low paying basic entry level jobs. Most of our part-time folks who are making minimum wage, they're not supporting families. So, it, you know, minimum wage has gone from, 1010 in 2019 to we're going to be at 14 bucks an hour this summer and 15 bucks an hour next year. And so that 50% increase 
comes with no productivity gain, which is crazy. So we have no choice but to up our prices and, and find ways to stay more efficient so we keep running the operation. Yeah, it's a, it's a catch. Using, you know, working with, like you said, minimum wage hirees, it's good because it provides them this the start. I got my start at a minimum wage job. That was my my first two years was basically working minimum wage, and I love what it did for me. And I love, like you said, seeing the impact. It's it reminds you that this is all this is all about people at the end of the day. I mean, you know, I, I have a line that I tell the guys I work all the time. I say, guys, at the end of the day, like all we're doing is shipping metal parts. The world the world will go on. But what's important is that we remember the person who's stressed out, the person who's having family issues, the the employee who literally just feels like they're overloaded and we need to help them. Like that's the important part. That's the hard part of what we're doing day in and day out. And yet you have that as well. Where at the end of the day, I mean, you're selling an orange, right? Like it's not the end of the world. You're not going to change the world with the products you sell, but you are changing the world with the environment that you're that you're creating. Yeah. And you know, we got lumped in, your know, grocery workers got lumped in with nurses and doctors during the whole pandemic. Like it, it, there was a major, there was a huge amount of a outpouring of appreciation and support during that whole time, especially when people really thought the world could end. And, you know, it, it was extremely meaningful. And I, I look back on those days fondly now because there was so much support. The team was so unified. Sales were great, obviously. But there was still a lot of fear, and we were the first in the nation to do a lot of things to keep our people safe and really led the way on that. And customers appreciated that, employees appreciated that. And one of the other biggest perks about that time period was hiring was so easy. I mean, it was we had the best and the brightest who left all their other jobs lining up to come work for us during those times. So, you know, we needed a lot of help and, and we got it, which was good. Have you found that to? trying to maintain that culture that you saw kind of like, I'm sure you already had a good culture. Cause you said you always had people that would come in later and say, I love working here and I miss it. But there was almost this like force unifier that happened during COVID. Did you create any new practices or new rituals to try and maintain even a piece of that culture going forward out of COVID? Yeah. You know, I'd say 2021 was a real struggle uh, emotionally for the company. Everyone held it together just fine, but I think the whole world thought we were going to be getting past this in 2021 and it just didn't end. I mean, maybe in Texas it did, but up here in the Northeast, it it didn't. People were still riddled by fear and it was a tough year because hiring got extremely tough. So, and our sales didn't drop off that much. We, we have held on to a lot of our crazy COVID sales, even as restaurants have opened back up and, the world has returned more to normal. We've we've made a lot of new friends and sales are still up there. So the pressure has still been on. It's like it, it just hasn't ended. But now all of a sudden we're doing it with less and less staff just because it's hard to find people to come work. And it that's that's been a struggle. So but your question was more for like keeping the culture alive. And one thing that's been tough for us is like we've had to cancel our annual like New Year's Eve holiday party. Not New Year's Eve, but we do it just after New Year's and we'd get 200 something people in a room and you know, a company would pay for the whole thing and we'd have drinks and games and dancing. And so last year instead, because we didn't do that, we did like a summer picnic and people were allowed to bring their families and we rented out part of this amusement park. So we do cool things like that. We have little things we can try to do like employee appreciation days where we'll pay for lunch for everyone. 
but it, I would say it is a struggle sometimes staying connected with so many people. And I, I haven't found, we haven't found a good way to do that in mass. So it's something to think about, but yeah, I'd say the, the unification is still there, but COVID was just this kind of like a wartime period. You know, it was, it, it'll never be the same as it was at that point. Yeah. Yeah. It's something that I'm struggling with. So I was hoping you could teach me, uh, keeping employees engaged across multiple locations across the country. And how, how do we all build this together, even though some of us may never meet each other in person? Yeah. And I mean, that's one thing I struggle with is like, you know, when I get out to go walk a store now, we're constantly hiring. We're hiring people every week. So every time I walk in a store, I'm introducing myself to people. Hey, I'm, I'm Rob LeBond. I used to always find it weird to say my last name because it's on the building. And like, I just felt pretentious, but I've actually learned from my grandmother that it's really important because it, you, I've learned to say it in a way that's like, Hey, this is who I am. And I, and I want you to know me and I want you to know that you can always come to me if you need anything and we're here to help you. And, and if you think anything is dumb around here, I want to know if, if you, if you find a, a broom that's broken and you're, you're using the stub of the broom handle to sweep up stuff, like let's just, let's buy a new broom. Like we want, we have to make sure we're always pushing down to people like, don't tolerate like stupid practices just because someone else may have like, let's get things fixed and keep moving forward at all times. Do you have a mechanism for them to share that idea or feedback or. I guess in a formal way, no, it's, that's more of a cultural thing, but it's, it's also your people think they're doing a lot of times what they think is in the best interest of the company can often not be like, Oh, you know what? We don't need to replace this. Why, why would I want to, have to have the owners pay more money. Like we'll just make do with this. But so they're doing that out of empathy for us. But then we walk through and we see like, you have to bend over a ridiculous amount to use this tool. Let's fix this and make your life easier. So it's something where, you know, it's, it's striking that balance between, you know, you can't have an open checkbook, but that's the importance of having managers and owners do store walks and be on the front lines to recognize and see these things that some, a lot of these people just will take it for granted or say, oh, it's just how it is. And we have to step in to break the cycle and say, no, this can be better. So instilling that in, in store directors is important. That's, that's something that we'll always struggle with because then again, them too, we are, we're a, a business of pennies. And so they're not going to go and spend money that they deem as unnecessary. But I, another example is I was talking to a friend of mine who's a podiatrist recently. And this guy is extremely successful. He has, 10 podiatry practices owns millions and millions of dollars worth of commercial real estate. He doesn't need to work. He doesn't need to be a a doctor anymore. I was like, so why do you still see patients? He goes, because one example is I was sitting in the chair the other week. I was using the nail clippers we had and the nail clippers were dull. He goes, it drove me crazy. How could nobody realize these nail clippers were dull? He goes, I threw them all out and I ordered new nail clippers. He goes, that's why I still practice because these are little things that the other folks, it's these little things they won't notice. So, you know, this is a struggle with operations and efficiency. And there's, you often have to do things that just don't scale, right? You know, we can't always be optimizing. And I have to remind myself of that often because I love when things are scale and you build it once and forget about it. But in our business, which a lot of it is a service business, you have to be out and about and interacting and I have to constantly remind myself that that's valuable work too, not just building 
the tool that's going to automate some process. Yeah, absolutely. I know I do low level work with the guys once in a while, not a lot, but I'll do shakeout and it's the same thing. Like I got frustrated for, for example, I was doing shakeout one day up in Minneapolis and every time I had to go, like you use a hammer and this other tool and you grab the casting and you hit the sand off, I had to go find the hammer because there's only two, but there's four of us. So different people touching the hammer and putting it down different places. So all day you're, you're spending looking for this hammer. And I'm like, we should just have like eight hammers lined up every two feet. What is that? Like, you know, 20 bucks, 50 bucks hammers lined up and then they're always grabbable. And it's like you said, it's the little things where they're not going to think about it. That's just, they've always had two hammers. That's what they do. But you know, an optimizer like you or me is going to be like, this is ridiculous. <laughs> we should just have it, have it within arm's reach. And then that's one less thing I have to think about as I'm going about my day. Yeah. And you know, this podcast being SMB operations, it's, it's finding that balance between what scales and what doesn't. And it reminds me of, I'm sure, you know, Ryan Peterson, he's the CEO of Flexport. I'm sure you've seen him on Twitter. And with this whole shipping fiasco going on, he went out and rented a boat and was driving around and talking to these container ships and saying, what are you guys doing out here? Like, what's going on? And then he, 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 rent, he, he rented a food truck and talked to the folks who work at the shipping ports. And he got incredible answers just by being on the front lines. And I just think that's a good lesson in operations in general is it's, it's that balance of taking systems at scale while applying the frontline knowledge that you can only get by being on the front line. Yeah, agreed. Really good. You mentioned earlier, you've got this weekly meeting, this L10 meeting, which is an EOS construct. I know you're big on EOS. What other cadences do you have or use? I mean, do you have anything that's daily or monthly or quarterly? And like, what, what is kind of your, if you gave me a list of your cadences for different roles and what, what does that look like? So me personally, I like the major departments that I oversee. It's like, I, I somewhat oversee the finance department, the director of accounting. I, I used to meet with them on a weekly basis, but I recently stepped out of that just because that it was it's getting to the point where it's a well-oiled machine and I wasn't contributing much valuable on those finance department weekly team meetings. But I have weekly meetings with my IT IT folks. I have an IT manager and I have another person under him. So we meet weekly, we go over outstanding internal IT tickets, and I can push things along, speed things up, redirect if I need to there. I have a weekly marketing team meeting with, we have a full-time graphic designer slash marketing manager and another part-time graphic designer who handles a lot of our social media. So we do all that in-house. We have like a monthly, we call it our ad meeting. That's like our advertising meeting where we get together with the department directors. And these are people who are in store that are like, you know, for example, our Delhi bakery director is also the store director of one of the locations. Our meat director is um, also a meat manager of one of the locations. So they're they're these in-person running a department jobs, but they also have this additional responsibility of choosing which items are going to go on sale every week and setting the prices for them, checking margins, so on and so forth. So we have a monthly meeting with those folks where we talk about bigger advertising campaigns that we have coming up. Other than that, the only regular like cadence for me is I write a weekly newsletter to about 20,000 of our customers that goes out every week. And I usually write those on a Tuesday and they schedule them for to they schedule the email to be sent on a Thursday night. 
and that has a link to our weekly sale flyer. And I use it as an opportunity to communicate with our customers and have honest conversations, provide feedback. And if they reply to that email, I do see it. Although I don't, I don't personally respond to them anymore unless I, unless I need to, but it goes to a, a, an email group that myself and our marketing team is on. And most of the questions are like, Hey, you know, thanks for the email. You know, do you guys carry X, Y, Z? And so my, <laughs> my, my team can, can call the store and confirm whether or not we have that item in stock. But if it's like, I was pissed off cause I had to wait too long in the daily last week. Like there's, you know, some things I'll get involved with and make sure they get smoothed over and then other things I just let uh, my marketing team handle. But for cadence, that's about it for me is those, those, handful of key meetings all right so like financials you've got so you've got key financials you care about on a daily basis probably on that dashboard so how often are you actually reviewing the full financials is that monthly quarterly how often do you look at that so we look at monthly PLs. they get more we take inventory of our perishable departments monthly so like produce meat deli bakery those ones we do monthly the center store barcoded products we take those quarterly and so the insights are much more, you know, gross margins are, are much more accurate at a quarterly level where we're seeing the full picture with, you know, true cost of goods sold because, you know, it, it's not, it's not just sales minus purchases. You have to take into account the fluctuations in inventory levels to get a true picture of your cost of goods sold. So that's the cadence for that monthly look at P and L's going through things. And then a, a quarterly look, deeper dive look, and then our annual review as well. How often are you doing inventory checks to be able to back into your your cogs? So the inventories are monthly for the perishable departments and quarterly for the center store stuff. We were, so this, I think I've talked to you about this before. We were doing perpetual inventory or we were attempting to with uh, our center store products where we were going to get to the point where the products were ordering themselves. And we recently have somewhat pulled the plug on that project because our main suppliers data was not reliable enough in the sense that when you're receiving pallets of items, you can't take the time to scan every one of those items and confirm the inventory level. So we rely on their accuracy and it wasn't accurate enough. So when we started doing spot checks after trying to maintain this, the inventory was price wise, like our dollars on hand were was pretty darn close to being accurate, but it wasn't accurate to the point where we can trust the the on-hand numbers to actually go and let the system order product for itself. Yeah. Anything that's bulk packaged. Yeah. And when you're selling 40 something thousand products a year. So that's currently still a, a human based process. Most industrials that I know, even if they have a technical system, I know companies that even have drones monitoring and flying and counting on the shelves and they still have the humans go out there at least once a year and count up all the inventory. It's just nothing beats, I guess, just a human resetting everything once a year, right? It helps. Speaking of tech, so what do you guys use? Is it a homegrown ERP or you use an industry software? So our, our most critical piece of software is our point of sale system, which has multiple components to it. It's obviously just point of sale. It does our back office inventory management. It's where we receive all of our products through. We process our invoices through that when the product comes in. That is our CRM. All of our customer data is in there. All of our couponing, all of our discounting. The same database runs our e-commerce platform 
and that's this is ECRS. They're based out of Boone, North Carolina, still a family-owned, independently operated software company. And they're probably the best option for independent retailers out there. They they compete against the big guys like NCR and uh, Lock, which is a Canadian company. Those are probably their two biggest competitors. But there's there's they don't have a ton of competition in this space because it's really just those three those three big options, and it's it's super competitive. And I don't envy them because you know. They have a they have a huge reliance on hardware. Still, you've got credit card terminals, you have the touch screens, which are the registers, the the computer that runs the cash register itself. You have your scanner scale, which is a, a laser barcode scanner that has a tray to weigh products as well. All this stuff has to be extremely heavy duty, commercial grade. You can't go and run a grocery store off of a square POS, like you know, or the um, Shopify version of Poyo Sale. Like if you're running a little art store, you know, in, in a little boutique operation, yeah, maybe. But with our volume, you need commercial grade stuff. So, you know, when I first got into this, I was like, how the heck could it cost $5,000 a lane for hardware? You know, but it does. You need the heavy duty stuff because to, to crank through this volume, it, you, it has to be reliable. And then you layer onto that PCI compliance for credit cards. There's a, a ton we have to do to make sure we're staying compliant there, separating our, our network so that there's never any um, unprotected credit card information on the network. And from there, going up the stack, you have your st- store servers, which house all the point-of-sale data, which then syncs with our HQ server, where it blends all the data together for centralized reporting. Is this all on-prem? Yep, currently this is still all on premises servers. Yeah, and those boxes range from five to ten grand a piece just for those servers, and we're getting close to needing to upgrade those again for capacity reasons. So yeah, so ECRS is the major tech stack for point of sale customers, so on and so forth. From there, we use a company called iSolved for our HRM, and they do our time clocks, our scheduling software, and our it's our payroll software. What other things we have there's what's your dashboard built in google sheets <laughs> google sheets hey so can you can you get like an api from your erp for your point of sale software or do you have to like export and then put it into like this sheet and it calculates it unfortunately it's still quite a, a manual process we do you know because we're pulling you know labor data from isolved we're pulling point of sale data from there you know so it's we're running exporting reports, doing pivot tables, merging stuff together. And it's a half an hour process to build the scorecard report each week. And I, I wish it could be manual, but we're just not there yet. And because everything is on-prem and not fully web-based, they, they don't have good APIs for automating a lot of this stuff. Got to build an RPA. Sounds like a perfect job for for uh, RoboCorp. Looking at that RPA. And then how do you... How do, it's like, what do you use, if anything, to communicate with employees? Like, how's communication work? So we give employees a 20% discount as a part of that. When they sign up, they sign up as a customer, but we set a default discount on their profile. And part of that is we, you know, their emails tied to that. So we can select a filter and email all of our customers from, from the CRM database. So you email all your employees, if you've got something you want to share with them, like, Hey, we're going to make this change in, in stores. And it's something you want to communicate directly, not through the L10 flow down. You're using email or? Yeah, I mean, well, I shouldn't say that. 
we can email, but what we most often do if we just need to get a message out is you hang a memo by their schedule because everybody's got to go look at their schedule every week. So it's a place you know they're going to see it. If it's something they really need to see, we can you know attach a, a memo that we force every employee in every department to have to sign off that they've seen it. So we can we have depending on how important it is, we have different options. Because email is not a guarantee, as you know. You never went towards the, we have talked about previously, and at the time I kind of got it, didn't really get it. Now I absolutely want it and need it. And that is a, like an SMS management. There's SMS management for customers, but very little for employees where I can put, like, I want to put them in a group by location and then by department so that I can hit certain departments, update them on incentives or whatever we got going on, safety protocol, safety meeting coming up. And there's just no good way to... No, it's funny. You and I had talked about this, right? You know, about potentially building something. And we were both super busy at the time, so I never did anything with it. But yeah, I know there's solutions out there. There's one I can't remember the name of right now, but they had actually built an app for employees. But uh, the cost with it is just ridiculous for a company of our size and the value is not there. So yeah, I think a simple texting solution where it's just as an as needed basis, not a two-way thing. It's just a way to broadcast messages out would be super helpful. Another business use case for this, my cousin would, who he plows like 60 driveways every time it snows was just asking me, he goes, is there a way I can like send a group text, but not have everyone see the messages? And I said, not that I know, but that's, there's an opportunity there. Yeah, there's there are some some customer management, but it's all customer stuff. And I looked into a few of them, customer SMS, to see if you could tweak them for employees, and they all ended up not quite solving the need. Like, yeah, I could have hacked it, but it was so hacky that the main reason, which would be like location specific, I wouldn't been able to do. And so, but what I, my ideal is to connect it to Slack so that I have a Slack channel that I can just post in, and that hits the employees. And so not because we we use Slack for all of our other communication. That way, Comms Hub is together. So I'm still looking into that. I don't listen. There's a couple. There's one that might actually work. It just uh, it doesn't do the broadcast like we're talking about. Each each text is a specific text that becomes a thread that you go back and forth on. But it's customer, so it's incoming. Like they can text me, but I can't <laughs> decide to text all them because it's for customers that are like complaining or want to give feedback. So. If I solve it, I'll let you know, and vice versa. If you solve it, pass that on. Yeah, that's an interesting idea. Where basically you build some sort of API hook where you post a, you know, a Slack message, and that service picks it up and distributes it as a one-way text. Yeah, uh, hmm. I don't think it'd be too hard using um, Slack API and Trello. Twilio. But Twilio, yeah, yeah. Just again, we got other. I got bigger fish to fry. Right? hanging fruit, yeah. yeah. Than that. But it'd be nice to have. So what else? Anything other tech that we didn't cover that you're kind of using to help run the day-to-day? I mean, we were on the G Suite for everything uh, internal. We are also, we use Basecamp uh, from the 37 Signals guys, Jason Freed, DHH. And they've been improving that product recently. And But the reason why we use it being a big company is it's a flat annual price, no matter how many users you have. So as we've been building out EOS, I've modified the the way that like the tools within Basecamp are to fit the EOS framework because there's some there's some good software tools out there for running EOS like 90 and there's a couple others but um, the pay per user fee just gets so high when you have a large number of employees I just, I just can't justify it for those so 
I like how Basecamp, I pay once and I can add as many people as I want. That per user fee is almost, uh, it's like a legacy pricing model now when it comes to software, because in the days of big software, I think it made sense, but we're, we're down in the niche vertical software that's coming out a lot now. And you can, you have, you, you're only solving one problem, but you're solving it with 500 people versus solving 500 problems with everybody. Like, okay, yeah, charge me per user. But now I, I can't pay for 18 software at one time per user that I work with. So you end up just cutting people out of the system and really yeah, really, it should be based on use. And some I've noticed some newer companies, even some newer ERPs, are going based off of use, which is what you're actually charged on. You're charged on the database and how big and how fast it is. That's what your hosting fee is. That's what your costs are. So as you have more transactions, you have more database, you have more storage, you need more money. So that, that way, for example, Acumatica is an ERP, and they do a lot of their pricing where you can have as many users. It's, it's about your invoicing and, and your transaction level. I like that. I think it's more fair of a model because, you know, I, I understand for G suite, like that's an everyday tool that you need to be in. And, you know, there's, there's per user cost for sure, but we only have the management staff on G suite. Whereas with these other tools, I would want all 400 employees on to be able to communicate with them broadly. Yep. And it works out better for them because think, think about all the data they're missing because you've cut out so many people and you've just got it. And really those products, the more data, the more useful so they've actually made their product less useful by cutting people off with the fee rather than just letting everybody get on there, make the data, make it a more useful product, et cetera. My two cents coming from the non-tech world. <laughs> <laughs> well, brother, thanks for, I mean, I, thanks for walking us through everything going on in the grocery industry and how you're kind of running your shop. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank uh, you. It's fun. I wrote down a, a few notes for myself to take away and take a look at. Always looking to, to up my ops chops. Mm-hmm. Ops uh, chops, I like that. Over. Maybe yeah, that's maybe yeah. that should be the name for the podcast. Ops chops. Yeah. <laughs> Raise your ops chops. <laughs> <laughs> it's got a good ring to it. But yeah, just everybody's got different ways of doing things, and there's always one or two things where it's like ah, talking to Rich Jordan, and he was talking about measuring the variance after jobs of what he expected versus what happened. That shows you where you need some work, and just. There's always a nugget or two for me that I can I take away. A while ago, when he got into the business, he was trying to figure out like what to call his his basically his margin number that he shared with his employees, and what we call it is contribution margin, which is sales minus cost of goods minus labor. We don't give them anything below that stack at the store level, folks, but we do give them their contribution margin. That's the that's how we define it. I'm going to steal that too because I'm actually literally in the middle of working on incentive program for plant managers right now and trying to figure out basically it, if I can pull away the principle here, you tell them what the part they can control and you pull away the part that they can't control or exactly. making decisions. Yeah, on. because yeah. What, why burden them with that number? Yep. Well, hey man, thank you so much. Appreciate you taking some time to catch up, walk us through that. Looking forward to chatting again soon. Yeah, absolutely. Let's get you up to Connecticut this summer. We'll do some surfing. Bye.